Welcome to Monday Morning Murder in the News with Alyssa Carroll. Good morning and happy Murder in the News Monday that I'm going to try to release every single Monday morning because the rest of the regular news is just hot scary garbage and you know you'd rather be hearing me and my bullshit anyway. I collect news articles along with articles sent to me by you, my beloveds, and others. Thank you for submitting. Now, unlike my regular podcast that I write out in its entirety before I record, this is unscripted and I don't read the articles past the headlines so you and I can react together. It's as if I'm reading the morning newspaper to you. We're experiencing it together. Okay, let's go. Our first news article comes from Eurodayfr.com and the title reads, Pedophile Pierre Defoy, Defoy, Defoy leaves prison and will be placed under house arrest. So Pierre Defoy, the pedophile who in 2008 kidnapped and sexually assaulted a child from Levis, Levis, before locking him in an old heating oil tank and will be able to leave prison. The parole board of Canada automatically releases him but forces him to respect severe conditions including house arrest. I think something might be being lost in translation here. Perhaps he's uh, from the French side. But anyway, in its judgment delivered at the beginning of August, the PBC judges that the 65-year-old man who had been serving a 20-year prison sentence since 2010 for the crimes he was accused of has made serious progress in his rehabilitation process. Quote, Throughout your incarceration, you have been seriously involved in a real process of rehabilitation, treatment, and change, notes the committee. She adds that Mr. Defoy made, quote, gains in all spheres of his life and that he seems to hold the tools for a return to society, end quote. Declared a long-term offender, Pierre will have to respect several conditions to be able to stay away from bars. Assigned to a residence, he will be prohibited from coming into contact or communicating with children from using drugs. He will also be prohibited from being near a daycare center, a school, a park, a swimming pool, or a recreation center without being accompanied by a worker. He will also have to take part in therapy sessions. In order not to interfere with his social reintegration, the PBC does not mention a place or the exact date of the release of the man, simply mentioning that he will leave prison in August 2023. My question is, how are they going to enforce him not being at any of these places without a chaperone? How are they going to enforce that? Are they they going to have someone, like, have a camera on him at all times, watching him at all times? I don't think so. They can't guarantee that, which means that the chances of him reoffending are pretty high, and that means that the children of whatever area they release him in are at risk. Anyway, it says the crimes for which Pierre is accused shocked public opinion 15 years ago. In 2008, the man had kidnapped a boy who was riding a bicycle in the St. Romald sector. I think this is French Canada. Uh, he had locked the child in the rear trunk of his vehicle, but the boy had managed to open the trunk from the inside. A witness saw the scene and dialed 911. Then concierge in an apartment building in Quebec, Pierre had transported his victim into the building. It was at this location that the man sexually assaulted the boy before locking him in a cistern. 
There, PBC is well aware that the decision to release him under conditions may not be unanimous among the population, given the seriousness of the acts committed by the man. Quote, the commission cannot ignore the fact that your legal release will, in, in itself, give rise to comments that will have an impact on you, which can weaken you and increase the risk of disorganization. You will need a good structure of help and assistance in order to apply the tools you have acquired over your long incarceration, end quote, writes the commission addressing Pierre. If it's so highly likely that he's going to reoffend, I just don't understand why he's out. Moving on to our next article, coming from NewsNationNow.com. The title reads, Alabama priest flees to Italy with teen accused of grooming. A disgraced priest and Alabama teen fled to Italy. Alex Crow is being accused of grooming the 18-year-old teen. The sheriff said, an authority figure, he has exerted control over her for years. Coming out of Mobile, Alabama. An Alabama family is fearful their 18-year-old daughter might be in danger after she fled the country with a disgraced priest. The Mobile County Sheriff's Office said it appears the priest, Alex Crow, and the teen, who authorities refused to name, carried out an inappropriate relationship before escaping to Italy. Since then, her family has attempted to bring their daughter home, having some communication with her, but she refuses to come home. Mobile Police Sheriff Paul Birch said her parents have been able to talk with her on the phone, and so have investigators. However, none of them have been able to talk with her on the phone without Crow being there as well. Quote, right now she seems to be safe, Birch said, but one thing we were able to ascertain is that he will not let anyone talk to her without him being present, even when talking to her parents, end quote. Investigators have combed through a revealing love letter Crow wrote to the teen on Valentine's Day of this year. In the letter, Crow says, quote, I promised to always care for you and protect you like a father End quote. Quote, you are mine, no one else's, and I will always be a father to you until I die. Now we are in love and we are married, he continued. Police have not been able to confirm the marriage between Crow and the teen after checking local records from Alabama, Mississippi, and Florida. Birch said it appears that Crow does exercise a degree of control over her and that she feels like she needs to be there. Quote, she is a young, impressionable kid. As an authority figure, he has exerted that control over her for a number of years. End quote. Investigators believe Crow has been grooming the girl for at least two to three years prior. Birch said that it was even another teenager that Crow had a close relationship with a while back and was ordered to discontinue the friendship. Oh. However, Birch said... There is an Alabama law that prohibits any sort of authority figure, including coaches, teachers, and even a volunteer employee, from having a relationship with a student under the age of 19. That answers a question I had. He said age has been a huge factor in this ongoing case because the teen is under 19 years old, and it is believed that the relationship began when she was 15 or 16 years old. An investigation and effort to bring the teen home is currently ongoing. Where I sure hope that my news sources 
alert me to an update on this one. I'd kind of like to know how it ends. Our next article comes from the New York Post, and the title reads, A couple charged with five counts of bestiality over 12-month period, alleged incidents captured on video. Ew. A Queensland, Australia couple have been charged after allegedly engaging in a series of sex acts involving dogs. <sighs> Crystal May Whore. Yeah, 37, and Jay Wade Veenstra, 28, are charged with five counts each of bestiality. She's 37, he's 28. The Courier-Mail reports that the charges were mentioned for the first time at Serena Magistrates Court on Monday. Police will allege that the incidents, which they also allege involved two dogs, were captured on video. These incidents allegedly took place on October 18, 2021, as well as on March 19th and May 17th and June 16th and October 25th of 2022, all within the Serena region. Following their arrest in July of 2023, the couple were granted bail while being held at a watch house facility. As of Monday, they remain on bail following the brief court proceedings. The legal proceedings have been adjourned with a committal mention set to take place later this year. In accordance with the legal statutes of Queensland, individuals found guilty of bestiality can face a potential prison sentence of up to seven years. The case will need to be elevated to a higher court before any legal actions can be taken. <sighs> bestiality. Well, we had to go there, didn't we? See, the whole situation with this, I don't care what side of the political thing that you're on, right? So the whole thing is about consent. So a, a one human and another human, as long as they are adults, can consent to do things with each other and it's none of our business, right? So whether you're religious, they'll meet their maker, you know, you're not supposed to judge. If you're not religious, you know, do what you will and harm no one. You, you know all the mantras. But it is an exercise in consent. Can a child consent? No. Can an animal consent? No. Can a corpse consent? Hell no. So I think that that's kind of the biggest issue with a lot of this. If there's... Ugh, gross. Bestiality is disgusting. And our next one comes from abcnews.go.com in the same vein of priests, Australian ex-priest has prison sentence extended to 40 years for molesting, I hope you're sitting down, 72nd child victim, 72 child victims. An Australian ex-priest convicted of sexually abusing children has had another 12 months added to his 39-year prison sentence for molesting a 72nd victim. Coming out of Melbourne, Australia. An Australian ex-priest convicted of sexually abusing children had another 12 months added to his 39-year prison sentence on Tuesday for molesting number 72. Gerald Ridsdale, 89, 89, has been in prison since 1994 for a series of convictions for abusing children between 1961 and 1988 while he worked as a Roman Catholic priest in churches and schools across his home state of Victoria. He was sentenced in the 
Ballarat Magistrates Court to an additional year after he pleaded guilty in June to indecently assaulting a 13-year-old boy while he worked at a Catholic school in Horsham in 1987. It was his 193rd conviction for child abuse. Excuse me? I'm completely flabbergasted. 193rd conviction. What? Ridsdale appeared in court via a video link from a hospital prison bed. He kept his eyes closed throughout the hearing. Magistrate Hugh Radford told Ridsdale he had been in a position of trust and should have been providing guidance to his victim. Ridsdale must serve at least 33 years and six months of his 40-year sentence before he's eligible for parole. His earliest release date is April 2028. How old was he again? 89? <sighs> Radford told Ridsdale, quote, you will probably die in custody, end quote. And I know this isn't, this is kind of faux pas, but I hope he does. The prison sentence has been extended eight times over the decades as more victims have come forward. Ridsdale has been unable to walk since mid-2022, and his doctors have recommended palliative care, the court was told. His medical conditions were not detailed. So it goes on to say, during his 29 years as a priest, Ridsdale was shuffled between 16 church posts. In 2017, a government inquiry into child sex abuse found his frequent relocations were evidence of the church covering up his crimes. Well, that's not a surprise. The inquiry found that the late Australian Cardinal George Pell, who became the third highest-ranking cleric in the Vatican in 2014, knew Ridsdale had been sexually abusing children years before his arrest. Pell denied any previous knowledge of criminal allegations against Ridsdale. The Pell and Ridsdale families had long been close in Victoria. Pell spent 13 months in prison before his own child abuse convictions were overturned on appeal in 2020. Then he died in January. I'm scrolling back up. 193 convictions for child abuse. How is that? I, I don't even know. My mind is completely blown. Our next article comes from the NewYorkPost.com, and the title reads, At least 16 bodies pulled from Chicago waterways since 2022, promoting serial killer fears. Quote, not just a coincidence anymore. I've been hearing a lot about this, and I've had a lot of you sending me messages about it as well. So the remains of 10 men and six women have been pulled from the Chicago River and Lake Michigan since the beginning of last year, prompting fears of a serial killer terrorizing the community. Patterns have been noticed as the bodies have piled up with five men's bodies recovered in the last six months. Quote, there's too many coincidences, Tracy Walder, former CIA and FBI federal agent, told the Post by phone. Walder thinks a serial killer could be at work, pointing out that the cases of, quote, accidental drownings, bodies being recovered far from where the victims were reported missing, and short periods during which multiple victims have been found. Quote, in a case like this, there are so many similar patterns right across the board, so it's not just a coincidence anymore, she said. The latest to be pulled from the water was 26-year-old Noah Enos, 
who was recovered June 17th, five days after he vanished following a rock concert at a local music hall, the Salt Shed, roughly a block from where he was found. Officials have yet to release the cause and manner of his death, and his family is working with private investigators, quote, to find justice for Noah. His father, Stephen Michael Enos, wrote on a GoFundMe page. His girlfriend, Nicole, fought back tears during a vigil Friday as she said, quote, I know Noah wasn't the first one to go missing and be found in the river, and I sure as shit hope that he's the last, end quote. And then here we have names of those recovered from Chicago area waters, and there's a sizable list. The Chicago Police Department did not respond to multiple requests for comment regarding the spate of deaths, S-P-A-T-E of deaths. The Post has counted 16 bodies pulled out of the water in 2022 and then this year so far, although not all of them were suspicious. Walder points out how serial killers tend to follow a pattern and how immersing a body into water would mean, quote, forensic evidence is going to be, for the most part, non-existent, making it an ideal crime. Perhaps you shouldn't be teaching the public that. At the end of December 22, local media reported the FBI were working with the Chicago Police Department on solving the, again, spate of drowning deaths. That's a new word for me, and I'm kind of a word nerd. Among the most suspicious cases is that of Richard Garcia, 46, who was recovered April 13th from the Chicago River near the Columbus Drive Bridge. His loved one said he was still wearing his FedEx uniform when his remains were located. Garcia had been reported missing from his south side home in March. The Cook County Medical Examiner's Office told the Post his cause and manner of death remain pending. Navy sailor Seamus Gray's remains were discovered six days later in Lake Michigan in the Chicago suburb of Waukegan. I'm going to say Waukegan. The 21-year-old was last seen leaving the local Ibiza bar weeks earlier. He drowned and showed no obvious signs of injuries, but his manner of death was, quote, undetermined. And it goes on and on. So anyway, do we think that it's a serial killer or do we think that it's... You know, it's kind of sounding like an Austin, Texas situation, right? Where you kind of think when you look at them mostly individually that it's just accidental drownings for whatever reason. But when there's so many, it's kind of hard not to let the mind wander, right? And think somebody's behind it. Do we have like a, like a upper Midwest copycat of the Long Island serial killer maybe? You know, who knows? I don't know. So moving on to our next article, it is also from the NewYorkPost.com, and the title reads, Ex-wife arrested in killing of Florida Microsoft executive gunned down in front of daughter. The ex-wife of a Florida Microsoft executive who was gunned down in front of his two-year-old daughter last year has been arrested in Washington state and charged in connection with the killing, and prosecutors say they plan to seek the death penalty in the case. Long a suspect in father of four Jared Bridgigan's brutal Jacksonville Beach slaying, Shanna Gardner Fernandez was collared after a grand jury handed down a first-degree murder indictment Thursday morning. Quote, Shanna Gardner's indictment acknowledges her central and key role in the cold, calculated, and premeditated murder of Jared, state attorney Melissa Nelson said at a press conference after her arrest. 
Apprehended at her home, she will be extradited to Duval County and also face conspiracy, solicitation, and child abuse charges. Prosecutors confirmed that they plan to seek the death penalty in the case. Well, they already said that. So, Bridigan, Bridget, Bridigan, 33, the guy, was killed in February of last year after dropping off the two children he shared with Gardner Fernandez at her home in the upscale suburb. The pair were in the midst of an increasingly bitter custody fight at the time. Oh, here's a picture of him. Oh, he was cute. So the man who remarried and had two small children with his new wife was traveling home with his daughter, Bexley, when he came upon a tire in the middle of the road and stopped his SUV. With his daughter looking on from the back seat, he was shot dead after exiting his vehicle to move the tire. The traumatized tot, who narrowly avoided being struck by the gunfire, remained alone at the scene for several excruciatingly excruciating minutes until a passerby stopped and called police. Oh, here's a picture of that Shanna chick. Yeah, she's pretty. She, her new husband, Mario Saldana Fernandez, was arrested in connection with the callous killing in March. The cops said he conspired with a tenant in one of his rental properties to orchestrate this man's killing. Convict Henry Tenen was arrested in January and agreed to cooperate with investigators after admitting to pulling the trigger. Shanna moved across the country to Washington soon after her ex-husband's murder and distanced herself from Fernandez. Hailing from a wealthy Mormon family in Utah, Shanna had relatives use an LLC to purchase a new home in West Richland. Suspicions about Gardner or Shanna's spiked after a tattoo parlor owner came forward and said she once inquired about a way to, quote, get rid of Bridigan. Bridigan. She admitted making the ominous statement to a local newspaper, but staunchly denied any role in the crime because, of course, she would. So he and her divorced in 2015, but their court war carried on for years until his murder another picture of him. He was kind of cute. The slain father's heartbroken widow, Kirsten, had openly suspected Shanna of masterminding his slaying. Quote, this was orchestrated, this was planned, and this was specific to Jared, she said after Tenen's arrest. Bexley, she said, continues to absorb the pain of her dad's death and sometimes recoils at loud noises that remind her of the fatal gun blasts. Quote, she heard the noises of the shots that killed her dad, and she was alone wondering what happened to him, and he's not answering her for minutes, and minutes are an eternity for a child, she said. The widow and several friends and family of the murdered dad were on hand at the press conference for Thursday's announcement. Custody battles are a bad deal. It's, it's a bad deal, and I applaud any parent's who are able to set their little petty bullshit aside and at least smile and pretend to get along for the sake of the children. If you can at all do that, give it a goo, as Mike would say. Moik. So the next one is not really an, a news article, but it was brought to my attention by a plethora of you. I adore you, of course. But it was shared on Twitter, so what I'm reading is coming from Twitter. I'm sorry, X. I don't know what it's called now, 
but it was published by the Daily Loud, at Daily Loud, and it says, Breaking, worst serial killer in modern history becomes eligible for parole this year. Colombian serial killer Luis Garavito, whom I've covered, who raped, tortured, mutilated, and killed over 190 boys and young men, is up for parole this year after serving three-fifths of his sentence. The murderer, also called La Bestia, meaning the beast, has the highest number of victims among serial killers in the world. So Luis Garavito, this dude, guys, this dude, if you haven't listened to that one, listen to it, because this dude, is it is absolutely insane. It is beyond comprehension. And he's going to be up for parole. I can't, I can't even imagine that, that anyone would let him out. He is absolutely deranged. Wow. And now I have just a couple more articles for you. They're both related to each other. So this first one comes from manchestereveningnews.co.uk. Manchester Evening News. So Lucy Letby found guilty of murdering seven babies as jury deliver verdicts and updates. So Lucy had been found guilty of murdering seven babies. Verdicts have been delivered at Manchester Crown Court following a 10-month trial. The 33-year-old from Hereford, Hereford denied murdering seven babies and attempting to murder 10 others, attempting to murder 10 others, in the neonatal unit of the Countess of Chester Hospital. However, the prosecution alleged she was a constant malevolent presence at all the deaths and collapses between June 2015 and June 2016. She was accused of forcing air into the bodies of babies, many of them born prematurely, and on two occasions poisoning babies with insulin. She was also accused of physically attacking the babies. Her defense criticized the medical evidence against her, saying that it was, quote, tenuous in the extreme, saying it relied on a 30-word, no, a 30-year-old research paper and, quote, guesswork, whatever that means. A jury of seven women and four men were due to deliver their verdicts today and found her guilty, all caps, of seven counts of murder. She was also found guilty of seven counts of attempted murder. The jury were unable to reach a decision on six counts of attempted murder. Below lists a full number of charges and verdicts. Our reporter, our reporter will provide live updates from court. But then it's... That's the end of it. Oh no, then there's a bunch of little bitty articles from it. But regardless, wow. Physically assaulting infants? What is wrong with you? But I'd kind of heard of this chick before. I mean, I think we've all kind of heard about this in the past few years and knew it was coming up. And then I saw another news article. I didn't read the other one. I promise I don't. But I saw the name on it. And so I happened to find kind of a add-on to the other one. And this is from the BBC.com. And it says, The text messages Lucy sent as she murdered babies. So text messages sent by Lucy in the hours after she murdered babies on a neonatal unit were a key part of the evidence against her. They show how she messaged colleagues after she had killed babies, often informing them of the deaths. In turn, she received sympathy and concern. 
The texts show how she offered to work extra shifts on the neonatal intensive therapy unit, and as her murders mounted, they also reveal how she reacted as the net of suspicion closed in on her. Here are some messages that she sent. And it says to protect the identities of the babies and their parents, each baby is named by a letter. We vibe with that. We flow with that. So Monday, 8th of June, 2015, baby A dies overnight. So the day after murdering baby A, she messages colleagues saying she doesn't want to go back into the nursery or see the patients who also had another twin on the unit, baby B. She then attacks baby B sometime before 11th June. Her text is, it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Just a big shock for all of us. Hard coming in tonight and seeing the parents. She messages one of the nurses to say she has asked to be assigned to work with another baby. So then in the little green bullet, it's like a picture. And it says, I just don't know how I'm going to feel seeing parents. Dad was on the floor crying, saying, please don't take our baby away. When I took him to the mortuary, it's just heartbreaking. Then, 11th June, 2015, three days after murdering baby A, she messages a manager of the neonatal unit offering to work more shifts, saying she needs to throw herself back in. And then the little green text bubble says, from a confidence point of view, I need to take an ITU baby soon. And then the X. 13th June 2015, so five days after baby A's murder and a day before she kills baby C, she has an irritable exchange with a colleague over her manager's refusal to let her go back to work in intensive care. She says when she worked at Liverpool Women's Hospital, she found she needed to go straight back and care for another baby. Otherwise, the image of the one you lost never goes. That was in quotes. The colleague disagrees, telling her to take a break. So the colleague texts, I agree with her, but I don't think it will help. You need a break from full on ITU. It sounds very odd, and I would be complete opposite. And then Letby says, forget I said anything. I'll be fine. It's part of the job. Just don't feel like there is much team spirit tonight with an ex. The conversation continues into the evening until 2309, so 1109 p.m., when Letby signs off saying, sleep well, XX. Six minutes later, baby C falls critically ill. She had been assigned to a child elsewhere in the unit, but that night she entered the nursery where baby C was and fed air into his stomach through a nasogastric tube, causing his collapse. So a text conversation with the same colleague she had been speaking to the previous night. So this is her saying, sorry if I was off, just wasn't a great start to shift, but sadly it got worse. I was struggling to accept what happened to baby A. Now we've lost baby C overnight and it's all a bit much. And then her colleague said back to her, hope you're going to be okay. This isn't like you sending the biggest hugs with the two X's and side note, um, my children who live in the UK, or at least in England, the two, the X and the two X at the end of the sentence, what is that to indicate? For us, it would be like a kiss. But what is that for you guys? Because I've had a couple of friends that lived over there and they would end text messages like that. So let me know what that means. Anyway, so then Letby responded back. I just keep seeing them both. No one should have to see and do the things we do. It's heartbreaking, but it's not about me. We learn to deal with it. Thank you. Three X's. And then another conversation 
where she says, on a day-to-day basis, it's an incredible job with so many positives. But then sometimes I think, how do such sick babies get through and others just die so suddenly and unexpectedly? Guess it's how it's meant to be. I think there is an element of fate involved. There is a reason for everything. And it goes on. So the next text message is, that's really nice to hear as I gather you are aware of some of the not-so-positive comments that have been made recently regarding my role, which I have found quite upsetting. Our job is a pleasure to do and just hope I do the best for the babies and their family. So what's interesting about this is that, and, and I'll have to kind of dig in to get accurate information because I don't want to just throw stuff at you guys, but... There's a different reason when it comes to women killing babies. It's not Munchausen syndrome. I'll have to dig in and see. But outside of that, I'm just glad she was found guilty and she is going to be put away. I Murdering adults is horrible, right? When you bring children into it, it's just disgusting. And infants, newborn, preemie infants, I don't even know. So I guess we're not ending on the greatest of notes, right? But guess what? It's Monday. I'm hearing you guys tell me that you are absolutely loving the news stuff, so of course I'll keep doing that. But as always, we're in this together. I have my normal 9 to 5 that I have to start tomorrow morning as well. Um, But we'll get through it. Um, Try not to be too sassy. You know, you need to kind of just paint on that plastic corporate smile and get through the day. We all have to do it, right? So hang in there. You've got it. I'm proud of you. Love you guys. Bye.